Venturing Voices provides a platform for women in South Carolina who get shit done. I'm Nell Fuller, the co-founder of Femex Columbia and Fem Capital, and each week I'll dive deeper into the stories of inspirational women who make an impact in the Columbia community and beyond. This is Nell, and I'm here today with Robin Waits, the longtime executive director of Historic Columbia and all-around badass woman, does great things for Columbia, has so much enthusiasm and passion for the work that she does, and I'm so excited to have her on today to tell us a little bit about her story and how she got here. Yeah, thanks. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome. So... Historic Columbia. Um, tell us a little bit about Historic Columbia um, and kind of the evolution of it from when you started there. Um, so I started at Historic Columbia in 2002. Um, the organization itself was established in 1961, so it had you know about 40 years of, of life before me. Um, and when I when I started, the organization was um, was pretty small and and focused on house museums. So we manage six historic sites that are all located in the city center um, that enable us to tell stories of individuals, families, um, who lived and worked in Columbia from the founding 1786 all the way through the civil rights and social justice era. Um, But when I started, the the focus really was kind of on pretty things and and nice houses Mm -hmm. um, and not really very inclusive in terms of histories. And so, yeah, you know, I I came on as the director of marketing and development. And there were three directors within a year and a half. And and after the third one left, they asked me to, to serve as the as the acting director, and then six months later, they asked me to stay on full-time. So that was in 2004, and I had some great, um, some great board members who were, were important leaders in the community. Belinda Gurgle was my first board president, and mm-hmm. Belinda was a, um, a professor at, um, at Columbia College, a history professor, a longtime Columbia resident, and just this really brilliant and dynamic and um, somebody who was invested in in Columbia being a a, a better place, essentially. So um, she wanted Historic Columbia also to to represent, to to reflect the community and to to be a much more engaging organization. Mm -hmm. And it was really under her leadership and tutelage that I um, took on that same kind of mantle and, and really worked with her to to find ways to get out in community, kind of beyond the house museums and, okay. and into neighborhoods and um, into talking with people about their stories that were much different from a Hampton or a Preston or a Robert right. Mills. Um, right. So, yeah, just, you know, really kind of, when I started, there were six full-time staff and now we have 19 full-time wow. staff. So we've grown quite a lot in um, almost 20 years now. Yeah. Um, so from a historical and social yeah. justice perspective, did yeah. you start out with that mission or, you know, like what's your educational background? Did you come at it from, you know what, I'm going to really yeah. push this um, social justice um, framework, you know, towards historic Columbia? Yeah. Um, so I think I come to that because uh, I have, uh, I come from 
community activists in my family. My, my educational background is uh, in art history, so I was much more into the stuff mm-hmm. um, than the story, but kind of, you know, art history is a way to, you know, we use art as a vehicle to, to learn about either the artist or the time that they were living in or the, um, the, the events of, of, um, of their imagination, right? Um, and so I was always using objects or, or um, paintings, etc., um, to help tell a, a, a more dynamic story. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandmother, my mother's mother, was very active in the League of Women Voters mm-hmm. and started the chapter here when she moved here from New York. Um, and then my mom was uh, was active in politics. She was one of um, the first women to serve on Richland County Council and then served in the House of Representatives. And so she was, alongside my grandmother, always really active in in community. And my father was as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it just is kind of part of my DNA, but also Mm -hmm. part of what I learned to do in terms of giving back to community. Um, And, you know, I think the nonprofit realm is a a great place to, to utilize that skill set. Um, and I, before I worked at Historical May, I was at the State Museum and I was the art curator there. Okay. But just found that it wasn't, you know, I was again dealing with pretty things a lot and really yeah. interesting artists and, and doing good work, but, uh, but it wasn't feeding me in terms of a community engagement opportunity. So Historic Columbia just came along at the right time and, yeah. um, and was ripe for this kind of work. Yeah. So you've led a lot of um, a lot of politically focused and you know gender equality focused movements throughout your time at Historic Columbia. Talk about where you feel like you've had the most impact. Uh, that's hard. Um, you know, I, I think that we've been able to do work initially kind of focusing on um, the African-American community. Mm -hmm. If we're looking at underrepresented stories, that was because we manage historic sites that enable us to tell those stories more effectively, whether it's the Man Simon site or now the Majeska Simpkins site. Um, You know, those are are great opportunities to to talk about the African-American story in a way that maybe hadn't been elevated to the way that it should be. Um, you know, at, at Hampton Preston, I think one of the one of the great projects that we've done over the last couple of years is to take the, the story of the enslaved families and individuals who lived at that site and, and elevate their stories onto the same plane as the Hamptons and the Prestons. Mm-hmm. Um, so that in every room that you go in now, and this shift happened in 2018, every room that you go in now, you hear a story um, from from each of those perspectives. And it, you know, it's interesting because of the white family that lived there. We've got all of this stuff, right, and right. furniture and letters and stories, and and for the enslaved families and individuals, we we don't have any material culture, any kind of documentation that came from them. Uh, in some instances, we have names or value, but but not um, not anything that personalizes it. And so it's it's much more difficult to try to craft a story um, of a person if you don't have anything really to to go on. Right. But it was important. There were, you know, at, at the height of that site, there were 
um, six white family members living there and 67 black um, people working, living and working at the site. And so it's, it's really out of balance, right, if you're only talking about the, the white family that was there. Right. So, and, and they couldn't have lived there in the way that they did if, if all of these enslaved people were not making that possible for them. So I think that is um, kind of the natural place to, to start. And then we have been able to, to kind of utilize those entry points in community to, to tell a much broader story, if you will, of, of Majeska Simpkins. And we just finished new exhibits at that site in December. I'm really excited about that story. Mm-hmm. Um, and Catherine Allen, who's our director of research, curated that exhibit and did just a beautiful job. Um, but, you know, that then kind of launches us into this platform of not just talking about um, the black experience in Columbia, mm-hmm. but Majeska Simpkins as a fierce, like, fierce woman uh, who was undeterred in all aspects of her activism. You know, she's kind of known for her civil rights work, Mm -hmm. but she was a social justice, a human rights advocate from the time that she was like a little peanut until she died at 92. Um, And, you know, those are are some stories I think you're familiar with and through the Columbia City of Women project. Yes. Um, And talk a little bit about that. The Columbia City of Women project was so... Huge, and I feel, um, you know, when, when you guys launched and it had so much momentum, and um, I know a lot has been happening behind the scenes, and it's been really hard with COVID happening, yeah. and everyone has kind of retreated into their own corners. So <laughs> right. talk, talk about how you guys are working behind the scenes to keep that movement going, and um, what's, what's next yeah. for the city of work? Yeah. Um, I mean, so much of what we do, what I think everybody does now is on digital platforms, right? So mm-hmm. just using social media to try to elevate the stories of, of these women. So Columbia City of Women was uh, established. We're in our third year. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was established to address the gap in representation of women in public spaces. So um, in Columbia, there is um, you know, fewer than 4% of all streets in the city center are named for women. Um, the same goes fewer than 10% of, of any um, representation on a public building is, is for a woman. And so you know, we know that we make up more than 50% of the population. Why are we not better represented in, right. in everything, but certainly right. in, in our realm um, in these public spaces? And you know, joined with the Women's Rights and Empowerment Network to, and, and Rachel Hodges really is the brainchild for this project um, to, to try to close that gap. So we do a lot of the research um, and help to tell the stories of, of, we have 20 women honorees at this point. Um, And then Ren helps to amplify that in terms of, you know, how can we use these stories as inspiration or um, to help understand our past to make a better future, right? Um, And so we are um, hopefully in the next six weeks going to be unveiling a public art piece at the corner of Maine and Gervais Streets. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, you know, we're excited about that location. It's right across the street from the State House grounds. Yes. So this piece will be in direct dialogue with the with the male white supremacists who we are greeted by every day when we walk on the State House grounds. So just to have an opportunity to represent a woman in proximity to, mm-hmm. but also with a direct kind of 
confrontation, if you will, mm-hmm. the stories that are perpetuated by the the monuments that are there today. Right. Um, we're also um, we are in the midst of accepting nominations for new honorees for City of Women, and that closes on March the fifteenth. Okay. So, um, you know, hopeful that we'll continue to get some good yes. recommendations for that project. Um, yeah, so we're just, we're, every month we highlight a new woman. Vicki Esslinger is our, is our honoree highlight for, um, for March. Mm-hmm. And of course it's, it's Women's History Month. So trying to, yes. you know, elevate as many of those honorees as we can over the next 31 days and, and beyond. I mean, I think it's, right. you know, it's, it's like I'm seeing all these, all these social media about Black History Month. It's like, why do we do this to ourselves I know. and our community? It's coming to an end. Black History Month is right. coming to an end. Right. And it's like, no. <laughs> right. No, it's not. Right. So, you know, one thing that keeps going through my mind is, um, you know, as you, as you talk about the importance of elevating um, Black voices and, and, and women in history, what role do you or your organization play in the way that history is taught in our public school system? And that's a loaded question and like throwing that out there. But Yeah, that wasn't on our list. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have, we have education staff who, mm-hmm. who kind of address that in a number of ways. We, um, we work actively in schools, so we have a traveling trunk series that we take into class or used to take into classrooms. Now we do it virtually. Right. Um, that are all standards based that that work to um, address I think some of the areas of our history that are challenging for teachers, mm-hmm. and whether that is slavery or Reconstruction um, or sometimes civil rights. You know, do they get to civil rights by the end of the year? Sometimes that doesn't happen. So right. I'm looking at ways to kind of fill the gaps. Um, there is a, a, an active movement to remove some of these individual stories and time periods from the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Like right now there's a bill I think that's being put forward that would um, focus on the study that the Trump administration put together um, to push against the um, the sixteen nineteen project that the New York Times did, mm-hmm. and and so you know we are advocating to continue to tell the stories that are that that are inclusive in our community, um, to continue to to force teachers to talk about slavery and Reconstruction and. And honestly, to keep social studies as part of the tested um, materials, because right. that's another issue right now, is that social studies are being pushed to the side for ELA and, and math. Right. And and when you lose that, when you lose your civics education or you lose your history education, then it, it makes it really difficult for people to understand, again, how our past connects to our, our present and our future. Right. So I mean, those are those are really key. We we work closely with teachers. We do teacher workshops to um, to be sure that they have the information that they need to do their work effectively. And mm-hmm. we certainly offer our sites to continue to uplift those those stories that that tend to kind of be pushed aside. And and actually, the you know the first real shift that we made at our house museums was was at the site that we now call the Museum of Reconstruction mm-hmm. at the Woodrow Wilson family home. Mm-hmm. Right? 
So we made that shift to a, a reconstruction museum because what we heard from teachers was this is a period of history that we don't understand or that there's just not enough information out there about for us to teach. We know that it's important, but we, we don't know how to get this word out. And so we first developed a traveling trunk and then we were doing renovations to the building itself and we're just like, what are we doing? Like, here's an opportunity to do this in a way that would be really impactful, not just for teachers, but for humans right. uh, across the South in particular. Right. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot there. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have a son um, who's 14. And so I hear, you know, all kinds of, you know, they're not off the wall questions for him. To me, they're off the wall because I'm like, what? What kind of question is that about race or about gender? Yeah, yeah. And um, it just makes me, um, A, glad that something was said that made him question because I think that that's really important. Right. You know, to start out with is that he heard something and had a question about it instead of, you know, immediately agreeing with or identifying with whatever mm -hmm. it is the popular word in school is, um, you know, at the time. So completely off topic, um, yeah. throw it in another direction. Yeah. So you grew up here in Columbia? I did. Or? I did. So what was, what was high school like for you? Yeah. Um, I went to AC Flora High okay. School. And at the time that I went there, so I graduated in 1987 from Flora. And it was a, I was the minority at Flora at the time. Um, and I was in, you know, honors classes. And, you know, I, I think back now in, in some of the reading that I'm doing now. And you, know, you look at how people of color were kind of pushed into different parts of the school system. I was, you know, there was one black person in my class. Mm -hmm. I went, I went through school with all of the same white people that, you know, from elementary school all the way through high school. Um, from an honors versus right, okay, regular okay. college mm -hmm. prep even. Mm -hmm. um, I played basketball when I was in high school, and so I had an opportunity to interact with people. Um, of color in particular, in ways that I think some of my peers did not. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I feel like I got an experience in high school that was that was pretty well-rounded. It was a small school at the time, too. Okay. And so, um, you know, as a class, I think we had 140 people in our graduating class. So it was a pretty close-knit group of individuals. Um, but how to, you know, kind of, for me a really positive experience in high school. But I was ready to get out of the South when I graduated and decided that I was going to pull up my stakes and go North mm -hmm. for college and ended up in Vermont at Middlebury College, which is a small liberal arts um, college. There were 2,000 people in the school, wow. 500 in my class. And it was, it was such an interesting transition for me because it was all really wealthy white people mm -hmm. from the North, mostly. Okay. And I, I had a hard time finding my way there. Um, I, I played basketball there, too, so that gave me a little bit of an entry point. But as a Southerner, mm -hmm. um, there was, you know, I had an accent. 
I was from South Carolina. I was the only person from South Carolina in my class. Okay. And there's this automatic judgment, right? Like right. as soon as you start talking, they think you're stupid and they think you're racist. Right. And um, navigating that was uh, was really surprising for me and, mm-hmm. and, and hard. And although I said when I left, I was never coming back to South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Maybe we all do that when we're 18 years old. Right. <laughs> um, I was... I came back for graduate school um, a couple of years after I graduated from college. And my family is all here. You know, my sister started having kids. And mm-hmm. then when they say rah-rah, then right, you're in trouble. You're hooked. <laughs> so, um, you know, just decided that this was the place that I wanted to be. Yeah. Um, and, I don't, you know, I'm glad for that. I, I, have, I have a lot of friends all over the country from school, from college, um, I have friends who I grew up with here. You know, my mom, when she, because she was a politician, we had um, a pretty interesting group of, of people who were part of my parents' circle. Yeah. Um, Jean Toll being one of those people. Mm-hmm. Um, Donnie Fowler, young Donnie, was, was one of my peers in, in high school. Um, Jim and Joan Assey, their kids. Um, and all of those kids have left Columbia and they're in DC or in California or in some one of one of those folks is in Kentucky mm-hmm. and I and they're doing really great work big work right and and I when I see them you know, I'm like why couldn't you what if you had stayed here like right. think of the impact we could have had um collectively or, or you individually if you had made a commitment to being in South Carolina and really yeah. making a difference here. And I, and I think that those are interesting choices that people make today that um, whether to whether to stay or, or to go, I, I wish that more made the choice to be here and really make meaningful change here. Yeah. The, I was talking to a group of um, students the other day that's in the business school and they do consulting projects and we were lucky enough to have them work with us to do a consulting project and all of them were like, I'm going to leave and go to Charlotte or Atlanta or D.C. And a lot of them were like, Charlotte, you know, I've got to get out of here. Yeah. And um, I was like, no. <laughs> like, think about staying. Yeah. You know, Columbia has a lot to offer. I didn't grow up here. I'm not from here. Um, grew up in Texas. Moved here from Austin 10 years ago and was never going to stay. And yeah. the longer I've been here, the more that I see the, you know, the beauty and the community that Columbia has to offer and the potential to make real change. It's not an easy place to be, but it's an inspiring place to be, I think. Um, So that's what's kept me here. (sighs) Yeah, I think we have to make it, you know, that what we... I mean, the basic foundation is, is here to make it a great... And it it is a great place to to live. I think it's a great place to to raise families and, um, and, you know, as soon as you meet one person and they're willing to connect you with their people, it's also, I think a town that's pretty easy to connect in if you, if you make an effort to, to do Mm -hmm. that. Um, and I mean, I, I see changes that have happened since I was a kid and not all, you know, not all positive, certainly. Right. Um, but, but I think that, that 
that I can see the work that I have done has made an impact in Colombia. And I think if I was somewhere else, I probably wouldn't have that same reach or be able to see it as quickly as we do, as we do here. So that makes me think, so Columbia, Historic Columbia um, is, you know, about the state capital. Are there other initiatives like what you're doing around the state, around the region that really focus on the social justice historical aspect of their city's history? Um, that's a good question. I, I, I don't know in, in South Carolina who's doing that kind of work. I think um, in, in Macon, Georgia, there's an organization called Historic Macon that's doing really important um, work around preservation, mm-hmm. neighborhood preservation that's equity-based. Mm-hmm. That's a great model for, um, for other communities to, to follow. Um, I, I think anybody right now who is, who is doing local history, who's collecting stories and sharing stories, has a responsibility to right. be equitable in that. Right. Um, and so, I mean, it's, it's the work that, that we have chosen to do. And even as we, I think, have made a lot of headway, um, it's always shifting, right? right? And so, you know, when George Floyd was murdered in May, that just, I think, amplified the, the need to educate ourselves as a staff, um, as a board, and, and to be able to utilize the stories that we have access to to help people make different choices for the for the future, or at least understand that that you know this is not new, right? right? Um, and it's not the fault of the person of color, right? Or the woman, right. or the LGBTQIA plus kid right. who <laughs> just wants to use the bathroom that's right. associated with their gender identity. Um, so talk a little bit as an organization about how you've done that, because I know when we. Um, you know, when we were working on developing and um, wanting to associate with Historic Columbia and the Columbia City of Women, um, I think starting the conversation and questioning about intentions and white supremacy is a huge step forward and not being afraid to ask those questions right. and to put it out there. Right. Um, so I have, I have so much respect for that. Talk a little bit about what you've done as an organization and a staff to start that conversation. Yeah, you know, I... I think a real turning point for for me personally was, again, at Hampton Preston, sorry to keep coming back to that, but um, Tanya Wyman Davis and Thaddeus Davis are a, a dance team, they're in a dance company, and they, they teach at the University of South Carolina, but Wyman Davis Dance is a New York-based company. Um, and they they came to me looking for a site to do this work um, as people of color, um, having access to antebellum spaces that are dominated by white stories. Mm-hmm. And they asked if you know we would be open to that at one of our sites. And I was immediately like, absolutely no question, when do you want to do it? Right. And working with them, so at, at Hampton Preston, we took all of the furniture, all of the objects out of the house, and gave them free reign of this building to create this performance piece and installation. And so it was the exploration essentially of black bodies in white spaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard even to describe how it went, but you know, it's, 
those rooms were pretty small and they had they did dances in or performance pieces in each room and as an audience you were in that space with them while they were moving and it was this kind of combination of um, dance that was associated with trauma and melancholy and um, but also of of love and um, and redemption and all of the it really just made the black experience at the site human mm-hmm. which hadn't ever been done before I mean to have black bodies moving freely in a space where they would have been enslaved alone is um, was just an awesome thing to to witness right and the people who who were able to experience that came away with this real catharsis and um, I think appreciation for the the capacity of these dancers to evoke that kind of feeling, um, but also that Historic Columbia was willing to open the doors for that to happen in this space. Mm-hmm. And and that that to me is an example of not trying to control a narrative, right? That, right. <clears throat> that we're not necessarily putting exhibit panels on a wall, right. but giving access to people of color to interpret that space in ways that feels right to them. Right. And that they then began working with us as a staff to to talk about not just how we do that from an interpretive perspective, but how we do that as individuals in community. Right. And so they have been really instrumental, I think, in in helping me and, and helping our staff kind of think about things in, in new ways. And I tell you, too, now, you know, I'm 51 years old, and I have 30-year-olds on my staff who are much more evolved in these conversations than I am. And, and yeah. they also have taught me a ton about um, how I can be more comfortable in even saying white supremacist right. or, you know, calling people racist in, in ways that just are, are honest and not right. accusatory. Exactly. Right? And so I think, you know, it, it gives me hope certainly that there are people like Tanya and Thaddeus who are willing to come into white spaces, historically white spaces, and work with those of us who are trying to tell a more inclusive story, but also just be better about operating in the community in a more open and authentic way. Um, you know, with the, with the murder of George Floyd and the, and the demonstrations that were happening across the country and certainly here, I think we, we then began to really shift to looking at what was happening on the state house grounds mm-hmm. and, and understanding that better as a landscape of white supremacy. Right. I mean, that is, that is, again, it's not a judgment. That is a, that is a fact of what those grounds and those monuments represent. Yes. Um, and, and the legacy of that is so, is so I think, deep and, and entrenched that it's hard sometimes to even recognize or, or acknowledge that, that it's just what we were fed, right? right. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think that we're collectively and individually at Historic Columbia working through understanding that better ourselves. And then through the sites and the stories and the research and the images and the ephemera that we're able to then kind of hold a mirror up to the community to also 
show how that has impacted us and and how we can take action to to make changes moving mm-hmm. forward. So, um, you know, you talked a lot about the young people on your staff and then bringing a whole new perspective. Yeah. Um, I know Historic Columbia has the Palladium Society and right. is really working to incorporate a younger audience. Cause, yeah. You know, Historic Columbia is, you know, typically you think of like an older population. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure that's where a lot of the, the donor base is. So right. how are you guys <laughs> looking towards engaging um, a younger generation yeah. to carry this on? Yeah. I mean, Palladium is a is a great way that that we are doing that. So, um, and that's been around for twenty plus years. I should know that as a history person, but um, yeah, that that's been a great way for us to get people engaged in kind of fun stuff, not making history, you know, always hard or or feeling like you're being lectured to. You know, we do that through getting people into cool places. Mm-hmm. Um, we, when we were doing in-person things, did events on the ground. You know, we had a water balloon battle that was an annual summer event that we would take uh, historic kind of periods of battle and teach people the movements and what kind of weaponry you had, but they were all water <laughs> balloons, and then stage these big um, battles on the grounds at, at Robert Mills. Um, you know, I think sometimes if you can get people there and kind of trick them into learning something, then it doesn't feel so, it doesn't feel so forced. But I'll, I'll tell you also that, you know, you're 20 and you're 30 something today is actually really interested in sustainability and mm-hmm. the uniqueness of place. And, and so I think our work in the preservation field where you're working on retaining, as an example, this 1600 block of Main Street to make it a cool place that people want to go. Right. Um, that, that then you can begin to build an audience around um, the retention of what is cool about Columbia. And, and reusing historic buildings is also a form of recycling that I think younger people are much more in tune to than... Um, than people who are in their 60s or 70s were when they were 20 and 30. Right. Um, and so just, you know, kind of trying to make it fun and interesting. Mm-hmm. And then I think the other piece of that is the, the social justice that it's the young people who are doing that work today. Yeah. Um, we're, we just launched a project in January that is looking at the LGBTQIA plus community in Columbia. Uh, and it's under an umbrella called Connecting Communities Through History. Okay. And that I'm excited about that. We got a grant from the National Trust and just got word from South Carolina Humanities of some more funding for that. Congratulations. Yeah. But we have an interviewee list that ranges from people who are in their 80s and 90s to 20-year-old trans kids. Um, and so I'm really excited about utilizing that, too, to both interview and and learn from the perspectives of young people in that community, Mm -hmm. but also helping them understand kind of what the legacy is of, of, you know, people who were closeted their entire lives or were treated in in ways that were less than human um, because of their sexuality. So um, that's, I mean, I think just continuing to try to connect in community in ways that are, um, that are, that are meaningful to people of, of all ages. Yeah. So will that be, that's so interesting. Will that be, um, like what's the medium, I guess, for that project? Is it audio? Is it, you know, 
art, um, what will that look like? Yeah, I mean, so we're working with South Carolina Library okay. and the Oral History Department at USC. Um, so it will be web-based, but then we will also do public programs around it. So we'll have guided tours. Okay. Um, we'll do kind of more non-traditional presentation engagement uh, activities around that. Um, so it'll fall under the same frame as our connected Connecting Communities Through History project. Okay. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about getting into the interview process of that and, and yeah. collecting stories that we can then figure out the best way to share to provide access. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. I'm excited to see that yeah. unfold. Yeah, yeah, me too. So Venture, um, the podcast is Venturing Voices. So, you know, Venture means to put yourself out there to, you know, offer at a risk. Why do you continue to venture, Robin? Um, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think because it's, it's, it's important in this community to take risks. Um, and it's not, it's not necessarily personally my strong suit, but I think with a vehicle like Historic Columbia, um, it, it makes it possible in ways that as individuals, maybe we, we can't do that or don't mm -hmm. feel comfortable doing that kind of, of work. Um, and you know our our community um, from a from a cultural and civic perspective, I think is broken right now. And so anything that we can offer as a as a form of both better understanding that can lead to some form of healing, I think is really important for us all right now. and 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 I'm committed to that personally, but also I think using Colum historic Columbia to to make that possible also. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. What did I miss? We covered a lot of different subjects. Is there anything else that the people need to hear? I don't think so. You don't think so? All right. Um, well, thank you so much, Robin. This was such a wonderful conversation. Yeah, thank you. And I'm excited to see as things open back up, how the community can start interacting and engaging again together um, outside of the virtual realm across, yeah. you know, City of Women and all that Historic Columbia is doing with your upcoming project. So I wish you the best of luck yeah, and thank thanks. you again for being on Venturing Voices today. Thank you. Tuning in to Venturing Voices. We're excited to release a new podcast every Friday, which can be found on our website at femxcolumbia.com forward slash Venturing Voices. We look forward to you tuning in next week and introducing you to another badass woman. Thanks so much.